Office Bearer Training tomorrow evening. Uh, certainly would love to, to see you there if you're available. And um, there is a soup supper scheduled for next Saturday. If you're able to make that, uh, please sign up just to help with planning a bit um, on the table in the narthex if you're able. Uh, but right now we have the privilege of worship. And what a joy it is. Let us begin our time asking God to focus our hearts and our minds upon Him, asking Him to bless all that is done here. Let's pray together. Father, you are our God, and we are your people by your decree. Enable us to turn our hearts completely and utterly unto you. Strengthen us this day that we might worship you with joy. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. <clears throat> the Lord calls us to worship with these words that he speaks to us from Isaiah 58. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own way or searching for your own or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Congregation of our Lord Jesus, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let us sing praise together to the Lord from number 154 in our Trinity Psalter hymnal. 154.
In the words of His law, God speaks to us this morning, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you nor your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the Sabbath day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That law comes to us as those who have been freed from our slavery. As those who are no longer compelled to sin and to rebel. And yet, though freed from our slavery, we find ourselves time and time and time again falling back into those old patterns, into those old chains of sin. And so that law leads us to recognize that we can't stand before God on our own. We can't. We are unworthy. But Christ came to be worthy for us. Christ came to pay all the penalty for all our sins. And not only that, but to render us righteous and holy in the sight of God if only we will trust in Him. And so this law, while it ought to inspire in us a desire to live for God, a desire to show our thanks, a desire to have a transformed life, it also must humble us and lead us to confess that our hope and our life are found in Christ alone. And we do that, we make that confession this morning by singing a portion of Psalm 25, which we find in Selection 43 from our Psalter hymnal, Unto Thee, O Lord Jehovah, we'll sing the first four stanzas of number 43.
And chief among the ways that he teaches us is the way of confession. Confession not only of our sin and our need, but of Christ in his divinity, in his perfection, in his absolute sufficiency. In 1 John 5, we are told, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar, because He has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Frankly, there's times it seems too good to be true. Because we know our sin. We know our stubbornness and our folly. We know the ugliness of what we've done. It seems like there needs to be more to it than just trusting in Jesus. Surely we must do something, attain something, earn something. But no. To do that is to claim that Christ is insufficient. That He has not done enough, and He has. He has done absolutely everything necessary. And that means that we can come into God's presence openly, confidently. And we do that now in prayer, knowing that He loves us and cares for us and delights to give us everything we need. As we do so this morning, a few prayer updates. We are blessed to be able to welcome, and soon to welcome in person, but not quite yet, um, a new covenant child. Thea May Sneller was born last evening to David and Hannah. Uh, nine pounds, 21 inches. Uh, mother and baby are well. What a, what a blessing um, to be able to, to welcome this little girl into the covenant community. So praise the Lord for a safe and healthy birth. And uh, Pray for David and Hannah as they grow accustomed to raising up and discipling a little girl. Um, in addition, Dale DeGood, his uh, recovery from surgery is going well. He has been having a wonderfully low amount of pain, which is a huge blessing for a surgery that is often known for its painfulness. Um, however, he does remain unsteady on his feet and has been suffering from significant swelling. So pray for continued healing for Dale. Um, and then uh, more broadly, beyond our congregation, obviously we have the ongoing um, concerns within our congregation. Um, but in the state of Michigan, um, our legislature has been... We've talked about a few things that they've been doing that have been ungodly, uh, including the, the hate speech legislation, which in answer to God's prayer um, has not yet advanced. We're thankful for that. Um, but recently they introduced a 
measure that was long expected, the Reproductive Health Act, they facetiously call it, um, because it's not really about reproduction or health. Um, It would basically remove all the restrictions on abortion that have been lawfully passed. Um, Clinics would no longer have to be licensed or pass basic health requirements. Um, Those seeking an abortion would not have to be uh, given informed understanding of what they were undergoing or what the consequences were or what the alternatives were. There would no longer be a 24-hour waiting period. There would be no ban on partial birth abortion. Uh, There would be no requirement to provide aid to a child born alive. And the state would be required to pay for abortions, among the other requirements or changes. This is wicked. Absolutely ungodly. An aim to kill as many babies as quickly and efficiently as possible. Absolutely ugly. Uh, We need to pray for repentance for our state. Wisdom and courage for our lawmakers and godly leaders to take their place. Um, And then looking even more broadly, uh, our president has informed many in the military that they should be on the alert regarding a possible deployment to Israel. Um, We need to pray for that. So, we have much for which to pray. Let's do so. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, when we think of our sins and our unworthiness, we're humbled to the dust. But then when we think of how graciously you have blessed us in Christ, we are amazed that those who have committed such sin and rebellion as we have can enter your presence without fear, being confident that you receive us as your beloved children. Father, we stand in awe. And we pray, Father, that you, that you would so work within us that each day we might begin with confidence and with gratitude, striving in all that we do to seek to know you and to show you our gratitude. Father, we pray that you would work in the hearts of each one here, that if there are any who do not yet know you, you would work in them through your word and spirit, the faith to trust in Jesus, and that in all of us to whom you have given faith, you would strengthen and deepen that faith that we might know you more, that we might serve you more truly, and that we might eagerly confess you as the source of all our hope. Father, we thank you for the multitude of your blessings. Not only have you given us spiritual life, but you're the one who has given us physical life from the start. And to that end, Lord, we thank you for bringing forth Thea May, for allowing her birth to go well, for strengthening Hannah for the arduous work that she just went through. Lord, we pray that you would give rest to mother and child alike, that you would give Hannah and David rest and joy and the opportunity uh, to raise up this little girl to know and love and serve you. And Lord, we pray that you would bless all of our children to that end that they might 
serve you wholeheartedly, trusting in none other but Christ for their life. And Father, we bring before you all of the other needs of this congregation. Among them, we think of Dale, Lord, continue to provide healing and strength for him. Thank you so much for the pain relief you've given him. We pray that you would continue to provide for all that he stands in need of. We pray for healing for Sherry's eye as she continues to await reduction of the swelling there. We pray for um, Dan as he um, continues to recover from radiation treatment for, for his cancer. We think of Keith and Lori. Lord, we thank, we, we, we're thankful for the care that you've given them. Likewise for Joel uh, Mulder as he um, undergoes chemotherapy for his leukemia. And, and Lord, we think of others. Lord, grant them the peace, the strength, the encouragement that they need. Be with our members who are pregnant, that their children might grow well in the womb and come forth in your good timing. Uh, for those who are grieving, Lord, we pray for your comfort. For those preparing for marriage, we pray for your encouragement and grace. And we bring before you, too, our family members. Uh, Lord, watch over them. For Jim and Di, as they deal with Jim's return, returned cancer. For Beth's mom, Cheryl, as uh, the end of her life draws near. And she receives treatment through hospice for Larry's son, Dan, recovering from a heart attack. And Rod and Jamie's little niece, Andrea, dealing with muscular dystrophy. And Judy's sister, Marcia, uh, Lord, and, and many others. You know the needs. We lay them before you and we confess that you alone are the great physician. You alone can provide what we need for body and for soul, for this life and for our eternal life. We lay all of our cares before you. And we pray that you would work in the midst of each one. And Lord, we bring before you our state. We grieve to see the ugliness and the ungodliness that some of our legislatures are seeking as they aim, not only as they have in the past, to outlaw the faithful preaching of your word and to consider it uh, verbal assault to make people uncomfortable, but as now they seek to remove all restraints from killing children in their most, most vulnerable state, in the womb, where they should be most protected and nurtured and loved. Lord, this is nothing other than absolute wickedness and depravity. We pray that you would lead to repent publicly those who have dared to propose such evil. We ask that you would cause all of our legislators to recognize that they have their authority only by your leave and by your ordination. Grant that they might recognize that they will have to stand before you to answer for how they've used it. That they in fear might use it aright. And Lord, where they will not bow the knee before you, we pray that you would replace them. 
with legislators that are godly, who fear you, who love you, and who seek to advance your righteousness. We pray, too, for our governor, who has far too often championed such wickedness. We pray that you would lead her to repent and to pursue openly a course of serving, confessing and acknowledging you as the King of Kings. And Lord, we pray for our judges, that you would cause them to fear you more than they fear men, that they might acknowledge the injustice and the wickedness of abortion and other such evils, and that they would make rulings that reflect their conviction that there is a greater judge whose law trumps the laws of men. We pray too for our president, for our federal lawmakers and our federal judges, that you would cause them to acknowledge that, that you are the king of kings and that they can do nothing right that does not depend upon you and follow after the precepts of your word. Lord, we pray that you would give humility and clarity to our lawmakers in Washington as their behavior has been oftentimes unbefitting those who are ordained into office by you. We pray for our president as he makes weighty decisions with regard to entering into more war and conflict. And Lord, we pray that you would bring about an end to the conflict in the Middle East. But Lord, we know that this conflict arises because of ungodly powers on both sides, insisting on their own way, their own right, their own direction with the followers of the wicked religion of, of Islam insisting on the destruction of all who do not follow their false god and the followers of secularism exalting man to the throne on the other side having denied the Savior whom their own scriptures proclaim in Israel. Lord, we pray that you would, in the midst of this conflict, in the midst of all this suffering, cause the gospel to go forth to transform hearts on both sides because we know that there is no true peace apart from Christ. So Lord, strengthen your church and cause your word to be proclaimed that many who now raise the sword in wicked rebellion, that they might bow the knee in meek submission. To that end, Lord, cause us to bow the knee in submission to you acknowledging that there is no hope for us or for our people or for our nation apart from you. Cause your word to sink deep into our hearts and to conquer our old natures, that we might be your servants in spirit and in truth. Now we ask all of this, Lord, along with the forgiveness of our sins and the transformation of our lives through your word and your spirit, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we prepare to look together to God's Word, let's sing God's Word. We're going to sing from Psalm 40, 
selection B in our Trinity Psalter hymnal. And we're going to sing the first five stanzas of Psalm 40. The first five stanzas, Psalm 40, selection B.
It is indeed the Lord who preserves and strengthens and provides for his people. Um, We're going to look together to Exodus 18, uh, focusing on verse 13 through uh, 23. But we're going to read the whole chapter so that we can uh, see it in context. Now, a little background to this. When Moses went back to Egypt, we know that he took his wife and his sons with him. Uh, But at some point, he evidently recognized that uh, this was not a place for his wife and sons. That, especially since he had a target on himself in Pharaoh's eyes, they were not safe there. And so he had sent his family to live with his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. Um, So what we come to here is the return of Moses' family. And uh, and with that, some much-needed counsel from from his father-in-law. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered his people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people." And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. 
And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves." So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Amen. Beloved sons and daughters of God in Christ, there is an old curse that says, May you live in interesting times. It's a curse because interesting times are interesting precisely because they are so difficult. They're filled with hardship that try men, that raise up new societies and destroy old societies, that give historians interesting things to write about. And arguably, we ourselves live in interesting times. After all, we have catastrophes. Hurricanes and floods and forest fires that demolish the land. We have war. Certainly doesn't take much imagination to see the Israeli conflict spreading throughout the globe. We have rumors of war. As the headlines from Israel are followed by saber-rattling from Russia and China and North Korea and elsewhere. And to top it all off, our nation, in the face of all these threats, is deeply divided. The legislature can't even figure out who leads them. And they're absolutely at odds about what worldview should guide their path forward. Now, in the midst of all of these interesting developments, we're living in a time of deep cultural debate regarding the proper relationship between church and state. It's not a new debate. It's been raging for decades. But it's been heating up in recent years as more and more cases go to court protesting the public presence of religion And as intolerance is openly demonstrated to those who would exercise their faith in the public square. And meanwhile, on the other side, there are those who are making great efforts to demonstrate the need for faith in the public square. Interesting times indeed. And in the midst of it, we need help. We need guidance to know what should we believe 
What should, for what should we advocate? What is the proper way forward for which we should pray and for which we should work? And this passage helps us to recognize what that proper path forward is. Because what we see here is not necessarily a form of government. I would argue that there are multiple forms of government that can be appropriately used under the precepts of Scripture. But what we have here are some principles for the ordering of the land and the governing of a people that demonstrates how the magistrate, the state, is given to help bear the burden of the prophet, the church. And that's the theme that we have before us here. God gives magistrates to help bear the prophet's burden. And he shows us that, first of all, by demonstrating to us the nation's weighty need. As I said, we come into this passage with Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, bringing his family back to him. Moses tells Jethro all that has happened, and now we don't know a lot of things about Jethro. He was also sometimes referred to as Ruel. Uh, We know that he was outside of Israel proper, and yet, and we don't really know much about his religion or much about the gods he worshipped, but we know from this passage that he acknowledged Yahweh as a, if not the, God. And if he acknowledged multiple gods, he certainly saw Yahweh as the chief one, as the most powerful and the most reliable, or at least so he testified to Moses. He worshipped the Lord, brought offerings for him, and enjoyed fellowship with Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel. But then the next day, Moses took his leave from Jethro because he had a lot of work to do. And Jethro, as perhaps any parent would, wanted to see how his son-in-law spent his day. So he watched, evaluated, and what he saw disturbed him. Because from early morning until the sun went down, there sat Moses, surrounded by the people, hearing the disputes that they brought before him, and answering with verdicts based on God's law. At the end of the day, he pulls Moses aside to clarify what he has seen. He wants Moses to evaluate the work. And so Moses explains to him that the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute. They come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his law. Now, understand Moses is not a dictator here. The people have come to him. They're initiating this contact. Two men disagree about how to settle an argument. Two neighbors argue over how to divide some possessions. One man sins against another and wants to know how to obtain peace. Another believes that his rights have been trampled. They come to Moses and they ask him, how do we settle this dispute? And Moses, in turn, teaches them what God, according to his statutes, according to his commands, what God would have them do with this situation. It's a worthy task. And really quite encouraging. The people don't just want there to be peace. They want there to be peace in the way that God has ordained it. They want God to settle their disputes. Now note well 
that Jethro never says this is wrong, what Moses is doing, because it's not. The people need someone to judge between them. As long as there is sin, as long as men struggle to understand God's will, as long as men have conflict between one another, there will need to be someone to mediate between them. And it's a wonderful thing when the one who mediates between them is a follower of God who's able to apply God's commands to their situation. However, Jethro has a serious concern. And that concern has to do with how Moses is doing it. Verse 17 literally says, not good, this thing that you're doing. He emphasizes the, the lack of wisdom in the way that it's being carried out. When he asks his question in verse 14, the way Jethro speaks emphasizes that Moses is doing this alone. Why is there only Moses hearing these disputes? Why is he the only one judging between the people? And so Jethro explains the danger of, this, of bearing this burden all alone. Verse 18, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Moses will wear himself out because the burden is too heavy. I remember, there's more than a million people here, probably more like a million and a half, two million. There's going to be a lot of disputes, disagreements, questions. I mean, you have a minister who serves a congregation of a thousand or more. He is way overmatched, and that's with elders helping him. Moses has got a million. There's no end to the cases he's going to have to hear, to the disputes he's going to have to settle. It's going to utterly annihilate him. Every day he's got to get up and he's got to go and hear all of this woe and all of this sorrow and all of these disputes and he's got to figure out what God would have them do for each and every one of them. And as soon as he handles one, there's a dozen more lined up to hear him. And the people are going to wear themselves out because every day they get there and the line is already stretching to the horizon. At some point, they're going to throw up their hands and say, forget it. I'll just live with the injustice or I'll just figure it out myself. They're either going to become lawless or they're going to just be pragmatic. Jethro rightly foresees disaster coming if Moses continues in this way. Now, that's a fairly simple judgment that Jethro has spoken. I won't belabor that too much, but recognize the wisdom of what he says here. Whether in church or in state, God never desires one man to bear the burden alone. The responsibility is too great. The, the weightiness of it all is too much. Neither a dictatorship nor a papacy is wise in the sight of God. Even if the ruler is righteous, which seems highly unlikely... Even so, the burden of bearing all of that weight on his own is going to crush any mere man. And the people over whom he rules will pay the price. The nation's need is weighty. They need someone to help them solve their dilemmas, their difficulties, their trials. But one man is insufficient. And therefore, in answer to the problem, Jethro suggests a change. Now again, we don't know a lot of things about Jethro, but we do know that God is speaking through him here. We know that because Moses, the man of God, follows his counsel. So Jethro is bringing counsel from God. 
And the first part of that counsel demonstrates the prophet's persistent or ongoing role. That's the second thing we see. Not only the nation's weighty need, but the prophet's persistent role. The, Mos- the, the work that Moses has been called to do, above all else, is the work of a mediator. Kids, you remember what a mediator is, right? It's someone who stands between two others. Now, of course, the chief mediator, the one to whom Moses points, is Christ. He's the one who stands between us, a sinful people, and our holy God. But Moses, as a foreshadowing of Christ, also served as a mediator. And so as mediator, Jethro says he must continue to represent the people before God. That's a, a calling with which Moses' work as a judge is threatening to interfere. Of course, it's the calling of all of God's people to pray for the needs of God's people. But Moses, as their leader above all others, he is called to bring their cases, their disputes, their concerns, their trials before God. He's called to intercede because it doesn't matter what counsel they receive. It doesn't matter what wise guidance they are given. If God doesn't bless it, it won't make a bit of difference. Guys, we see that today. You take a time of strife and difficulty in your marriage, you can go to the wisest counselor out there. They can give you the absolute perfect advice. If you're not willing to take it, it doesn't mean a bit of difference. Or if one of you is willing to take it, but the other is not, it won't make a bit of change. And the only way you're both going to be willing to take it is if God works in both of your hearts to soften you and to enable you to take it. Which means the wisest, the most helpful thing that counselor can do is pray for you to be receptive, right? And that's not just in marriages. That's among neighbors. That's among broader families. That's among nations and states. The wisest, most godly counsel out there is going to be useless apart from God's grace. And God gives His grace when it is sought in prayer. So Moses' most essential calling is to pray. And along with that, he is called, verse 20, to warn them about the statutes and the laws and make known the way in which they must walk and what they must do. From the start, Moses stood as Israel's chief teacher, which is an essential work. It's his calling to explain to the people the principles that God has given them as his people for living with one another and for living before God. If he's so busy doing all this judging, dealing with all these individual cases, well, the people are going to get worse and worse and worse because they're not hearing his teaching concerning how they ought to live. They're not going to hear the teaching that will will head off those disputes, not to mention they're not going to hear the teaching that's going to help them to deal with the disputes. You see, in in handling all these individual cases, not only does Moses have no time for prayer, he has no time for teaching. And that's not good. That's not okay. Now understand what Moses is being taught here by Jethro is really the continuing role of the church 
Jethro tells Moses to focus his time on praying for God's people and on teaching them. 1,500 years later, the apostles leading the church in a time of great growth in Jerusalem. When multitudes were turning to the Lord every day, they found themselves overwhelmed with practical needs, making sure that the widows were cared for, topping the list. And so, finally, overwhelmed by that, seeing that they were not doing justice to the calling set before them, they, they called on the people to set forth men, and they ordained them as deacons, saying, we will appoint them to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They recognized, although it was important that the widows be cared for, although it was essential that all of these practical needs be addressed, it must not interfere with their duty to pray and teach to bring the needs of the people before God and to bring the commands of God before the people. Later on, Paul would teach Timothy as a leader of the church what his duties were. And in 1 Timothy 2, he says, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. They were, Timothy, as a pastor in the church, he was called to lead the people in praying for the nation, for the church, for one another. And then a little later on, chapter 4, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. That was the other thing he was called to focus on, not only prayer, but preaching and teaching. Just as for Moses, so for the church today. Preaching and teaching along with prayer stands at the heart of our calling. Now there are other things that we should do. There are other profitable ways that we can spend our time. But they must never interfere with, they must never overshadow that which stands at the heart of the calling of the church, which is preaching and praying. And if we allow ourselves to be derailed from that, we can do nothing but hurt the nation. Beloved, we cannot stress that enough. The blessing of God sought in prayer and the diligent teaching of God's word stand as the only sure foundation for a godly society. If our, not just our church, but if our nation would be blessed, the church must not neglect prayer and preaching. Apart from the teaching of God's word, there can be no, good, no true justice. Apart from continued prayer for God's blessing, God will not bestow the blessing we need. It's precisely here that our American society has things backward. We hear so much rhetoric about how the church must not be allowed to influence the state. We must not allow the Ten Commandments to be posted in the courtroom. We must not allow the Bible or prayer to be in the classrooms. If we allow these, they say, the church will somehow corrupt the state, but that's backward. Our concern ought to be that the state will corrupt the church. Because it is the church that seeks the blessing of God without which the nation will surely be destroyed. It is the church that possesses the wisdom the state needs if it is to continue for very long. It is not the state that needs protecting from the church, but rather the church that needs to be protected from distraction by the state. 
It is this which is the prophet's persistent role and the role likewise of the church today. Brothers, we must never, ever, ever allow the church to fall silent or allow it to get up from its knees. The most important thing this church can do for the sake of of the state is not to go to Lansing and lobby or to hop on a bus and go to D.C. and protest. Might there be a time for those things? Absolutely. But that's not the focus. The most important thing we can do is to faithfully preach God's Word here Especially so that these young ones might grow up knowing what it means to be godly, knowing what a godly society ought to look like, knowing well the foundation on which we need to be built, and praying for one another and for the leaders of this nation. But we don't need to stop there. This church is, in a very real sense, an embassy of the kingdom of God in the midst of the state. And we are not just permitted, but duty-bound to bring that word to the state and to pray on behalf of the state. If they go astray, when they go astray, how are they going to know they've gone astray if the ones who possess the truth don't tell them that? So we must, because no one else is able. But... Not going to belabor that. Notice Jethro's not done. He now turns to the affairs of the state, considering the needs of society. And in the last of his counsel, he sets forth the magistrate's godly calling. And as he does so, he lays out a blueprint for a righteous government. Again, this can be applied in different ways, but the principles are essential. He tells Moses to select men and to establish them as chiefs over the people. Now, that's an interesting word because the word there for chiefs is not a word you would ever use for the king. It is always a word that indicates a relative leader. In other words, a leader who himself is under authority. It's never used of God. It's never used of the Messiah. It is never even used of the king. It's always a lesser leader who is under himself, under authority. These men are to be called to judge the people at all times. That's what Moses had been doing. When the people of Israel had a dispute, they came to him. They sought counsel from him to settle it. Well, that's what these men are to do. But unlike Moses, they would not act alone. The burden would be shared. There would be a system of governors, of judges. Some over many, some over less, some over very few. There's some debate as to whether when he speaks of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, he's talking about individuals or families. doesn't matter. The principle is the same. There are lesser magistrates and greater magistrates. There are original magistrates and there are appellate magistrates. Those who deal with relatively insignificant cases and those who deal with great cases. What's important is that they are not alone and that they are not chosen haphazardly. Notice 
verse 21, these officials are to be selected not on the basis of whom they know or of how popular they are. They are to be chosen from among all the people, from all of the tribes, on the basis of their character. Why do we need to hear that? On the basis of their character, they're to be able men. Not the guys who have no experience. Not the guys who have no triumphs, nothing to show for their labor. They're tested men. The word used for able there is what you would use to describe a soldier who has been in battle. He's been tested. He's demonstrated his power, his ability, his wisdom, his understanding. Not only, well, just to be clear, they have to be able not only so that they can speak wisely, but so that they will be respected. A guy who's only been in academia, who only knows theories and ideas, philosophies, who's gonna, who among able men is going to trust him? What have you ever done with your life? What have you ever accomplished? What do you know about my life and my hardships? Right? He's got to be a tested man. And with that, a man who fears God. Their confidence and their power must come not from their muscles, nor from their pride, nor from their learning, but from the Lord. They need to understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. With that, they need to be men who are trustworthy. Men in whose judgment you can be confident. Their opinions are not swayed by the fear of man, but they speak and they do that which they know to be true, and furthermore, they hate a bribe. They're not going to be swayed by lobbyists. They're not going to go to the the highest bidder. They are men who will do what God commands and only what God commands because that is who they are. Having been selected, as I said, these men are put over fewer or greater numbers of men. And the vast majority of the cases will be heard by them. But, Jethro says, every great matter they will bring to Moses. Now, there's no definition given for what a great matter is. But if we look at the rest of Moses' writings, we can see that, for the most part, it was the cases that were deeply serious, capital cases, and those which set a precedent, which they brought to Moses. So, for instance, in Numbers 15, we have a a man who is found breaking the Sabbath. They knew that was wrong. They have no idea what to do about it. How seriously does God take breaking the Sabbath? The guy was collecting sticks. What do we do? Do we find him? Do we smack him on the wrist? Do we uh, publicly ridicule him? What do we do? So they bring it to Moses. Moses takes it to God. God tells him, have the man executed. They probably wouldn't have done that on their own. Seems like overkill, but not to God. God wants them to see, this is how seriously I take the Sabbath day. This is how seriously I take the day of rest and of worship. Take note now of the significance of the system that is instituted here by Jethro under Moses. The magistrates, those who were to judge society, were to be regarded as agents of God. They were selected on the basis of their godly character. Their judgment was handed down on the basis of God's commandments and decrees. When they ruled, their judgment was to be regarded as an application of God's will. And the church, led by Moses, was superior to the state. 
That was the Supreme Court. And that makes sense. Because if the magistrate is to judge on the basis of God's commands and principles, and you don't know what to do in a particular case, who do you take it to but the ones to whom God's word has been entrusted? So now what does that mean for church and state today? Folks, it means everything. These officials were not to serve only in the wilderness, but at all times. And that makes sense. Scripture tells us, again, true knowledge begins with the fear of the Lord. He who submits to God is blessed. He who rejects God is cursed. Psalm 1. Those magistrates who would be blessed must start by kissing the sun. Psalm 2. And so in Romans 13, the apostle urges us to submit to the governing authorities. Why? Because he is God's servant for your good. And yet... He does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath upon the wrongdoer. If we are to have true justice and blessing in our society, then our governing authorities, the rulers who make the law in the legislature, the rulers who enforce the law in the executive, the rulers who apply the law in the judicial, these must recognize that they are agents of God, that God has raised them up and ordained them that they ought to apply above all else, not the, the words of men, but the law of God, and that if they are to be a blessing, they must execute their office through faith in God. What God prescribed for Israel of old in this passage, it's good for us. Woe to us when we name leaders When we vote for leaders, when we advance leaders simply because they are popular or because they can stir things up or because they're outsiders rather than because they are godly, able men who fear the Lord, who aren't swayed by a bribe. And woe to us when we allow our leaders to rule on the basis of polls and on the basis of what will get them elected rather than on the basis of the truth of God's word and the righteousness that he commands. The prescriptions Jethro speaks here are prescriptions that are wise for absolutely every nation. And it goes to us too. Woe to us when we see the wickedness that's happening in Lansing and we don't first of all fall to our knees to pray. And secondly, as individuals and when necessary as a church communicate to our lawmakers and to our governor and to our judges that this is the way forward prescribed by God and that any other course will bring upon us his curse. Woe to us when we keep the clear prescriptions of God to ourselves rather than proclaiming them as we have been called to do. Would you turn this nation around? Would you seek blessing and peace and justice for America? Then church and state must not, may not, cannot remain separate. But it must be the word preserved and taught by the church that undergirds the state. And it must be the prayer of God's people seeking God's blessing that causes the state to turn around. There is absolutely no other way to find hope for this land. None. So let us, brothers and sisters, begin.
Let us commit as a church and as families to pray for the leaders of our state and for the leaders of our nation. And let us persist in that prayer consistently. And then let us study God's word deeply. Applying it to the hearts of our children that they might become the statesmen of tomorrow. Statesmen who are well grounded upon God's word. And let us speak to our leaders today unflinching about applying God's word to, to, to modern examples. Unflinching about calling them to submit to God first and foremost. Unashamed to call them to seek their wisdom and their knowledge from God's word and from no one else. Let us hand them Bibles and say, please use this in formulating your laws. Please use this in evaluating bills. Please use this in applying justice. And let us not let them refuse. We are the keepers of the truth of God's word. We are the ones who are able to enter his throne room and seek his blessing. Woe to us if we don't use it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need what only you can provide. Grant then that we, out of conviction of our calling and of our privilege might seek persistently for the blessing that you alone can give and cause us, Lord, to be bold and fearless in bringing your word and applying it to the magistrates of our land. And Lord, make them to be receptive. Cause them to recognize the emptiness and the misery of trying to govern on the basis of, of man's wisdom, which is folly. Soften the hearts of our magistrate. Strengthen the backbone of your church. And so cause your name to be glorified in this land, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved, in response, let us acknowledge that it is God who has blessed our land in the past and God's blessing we need on our land in the future as we stand and sing number 476, number 476.
Let us pray together. Father, as we bring forth to you our tithes and our offerings, we pray that you would receive them as a token of our gratitude, for you have given us all that we possess, and we possess it as stewards of your good grace. Be honored and glorified through these gifts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our offering song is number 101, number 101. We're going to sing stanzas 1, 2, 3, 5, and 6. 1, 2, 3, 5, and 6 of 101. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.